at a Special Olympics track meet. A young woman had just won the 50-meter dash, and she was jumping up and down, all excited. She yelled out to her parents, Look, Mom and Dad, I won! Her parents instantly burst into tears. At the awards ceremony, the young girl proudly stood there with a medal placed around her neck. She ran over to her parents, who were crying now even more than before. The three of them kept hugging, and the parents kept crying. One of the Special Olympics officials who had watched the whole scene became concerned, went over to the parents and said, uh, excuse me, is, is, is there anything wrong? Through her tears, the mom said, no, nothing's wrong, Every, everything's right. We heard our daughter speak for the very first time. Sometimes, sometimes, there is great joy in the midst of our circumstances. The reformer John Calvin, who is often couched as a, a, uh, uh, a morose and, and dark man. John Calvin wrote this, listen. We are nowhere forbidden in scriptures to, to laugh or to be satisfied with food or to annex new possessions to those already enjoyed by ourselves or our ancestors or to be delighted with music or to drink wine. I wonder if he was commenting maybe on this verse from Ecclesiastes 9. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. There is absolutely nothing wrong with finding joy in the midst of our circumstances. But I want you to note this. There is a deeper joy. There is a more enduring, uh, more uh, durable joy that exceeds, that goes beyond our circumstances. I put this quote in your notes from Elizabeth Elliot that I, I think captures where we will be focusing our attention this morning in the Scriptures. She wrote this, Joy is not the absence of suffering, a change of circumstances. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God, the presence of God in the midst of our circumstances, our suffering our sorrow, our disappointments. 
This morning we are in the middle of John chapter 16. If you have been with us through our our study in John's Gospel, you know that chapters 14, 15, and 16 are part of what um, uh, scholars call Jesus' upper room discourse. These are words that he gave to his men, specifically the 11. Judas Iscariot is not with them at this time. Jesus knows his men are sorrowful. It says so in chapter 16, verse 6. Sorrow has filled your heart, Jesus says. He knows this about his men. And in the midst of these circumstances, knowing that their master will be leaving them, he has told them repeatedly that he is going to be betrayed, executed, removed from them. They know that Jesus says what he means and means what he says. He's not playing games with them. They know this is happening But in the midst of this, these are Jesus' last words. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to encourage them. John chapter 16. This morning we're going to look at chapter 16, verse 12 and following. I invite you to look at these verses and follow along as I read. Through verse 24. I have many more things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, and he will take with mine, and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said to to you that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? And because I go to the Father? So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they they wished to to question him, and, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will grieve but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again. 
and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. I divided this text into two parts. Part one, the Spirit will speak carefully, precisely. And point number two, and you will pray confidently. Point number one, look again at verse 12 in our text. Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This is the last chance that Jesus has to speak to them before he is crucified. These are the most important words. But he realizes the condition of his men. They are filled with sorrow, and they have no more capacity to carry any additional weight. In Psalm 139, verse verse 15, David, the author of that psalm, says, O Lord, you know my frame. God knows how much weight I can carry on my shoulders, both literally and figuratively. And Jesus knew of his men that their frame was full. They could carry no more additional weight, no more additional information on their shoulders. They were about to burst. They didn't have any more spiritual capacity. Gentlemen, I want to tell you a lot more. There is so much more that you need to know, but you can't bear it. You don't have the ability to carry anything else. But all is not lost, verse 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now this is the second time that Jesus has identified the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the Spirit of truth. The first time was in chapter 14. If you look over there at um, uh, verse 16, Jesus said, this is, this is just a couple paragraphs earlier. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Paul gives, or rather Jesus gives, a promise to his men that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them in such a way that that Holy Spirit will indwell them forever. Do you realize that? 
If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have all the Holy Spirit there is. And he lives personally within your soul and will be there a resident, a resident tutor, a resident helper, a resident counselor for the rest of eternity. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says back in chapter 16, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. Guide you into all truth. He is called the Spirit of truth because he speaks truthfully. He doesn't tease. He doesn't say one thing and really mean another. He always speaks the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Middle of verse 13. He will not speak on his own initiative. That is, the Holy Spirit never goes rogue. He never is the renegade. He never uh, speaks on his own. The Holy Spirit is always and will forever be part of the triune God. So when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within a believer, God is taking up residence in one whom he has purchased and he now owns. The Holy Spirit has a particular responsibility within the life of the believer to speak truth, to guide in that truth. He's not going to speak on his own initiative. What he hears, he will speak. Now, Jesus says at the end of this this paragraph in verse 15, all the things that the Father has, all the things that the Father um, is characterized by, also characterizes Christ. The knowledge that the Father has is the knowledge that Christ has, which is also the knowledge that the Holy Spirit has. And as one unity, one being one God, though we speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is but one God. He speaks truth. There is a united effort here in every respect. Each member of that Trinity has a different role in the process of redemption. In verse 14, uh, we read that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. He takes what is mine, Jesus says, and discloses it to you. We could could use the phrase, um, the, the Holy Spirit is always Christocentric, meaning that 
the Holy Spirit's role in the process of redemption is not to shine the spotlight on himself. The Holy Spirit never takes a selfie. The Holy Spirit is permanently focusing that spotlight of attention on Christ. The Holy Spirit's role is to highlight the work of Christ. He points people to Christ, always pushing the focus of attention on the Lord Jesus. Here's another aspect of the Holy Spirit's work. You'll notice in verse 13, then again in verse 14, then again in verse 15, the repeated word, disclose. Now Jesus began this paragraph saying, I wish I could tell you more. There are so many more things you need to know. But you can't bear them. I I cannot put any more weight on your shoulders. You can't handle it right now. But wait, all is not lost. I am going to send, the Father is going to send, this is a united effort of the Godhead. I am going to send the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. He will be in you. He will guide you into the truth. He will teach you the truth. He will disclose the truth. Now, primarily, these words are not, direct, are, are not written to you. These are words that are primarily written to these 11 men before Jesus. These are going to be the ones that will be the apostles. The word apostle simply means the sent one. They, they will be specially commissioned by Christ and they will be scattered throughout the known world. They need this particular work of the Holy Spirit to disclose that which is true about the Christ. The other thing that these these men are going to do is author the New Testament. They particularly need the disclosing ministry of the Holy Spirit so that they might gain understanding into the truth of God, specifically truth having to do with the cross of Christ. They need to know the the meaning, the significance of why did Jesus have to die? The Holy Spirit would be sent by Christ specifically to disclose truth, cross truth. Why Jesus had to die, the the death of of a common criminal kind of truth. Now when we talk about the disclosing work of the Holy Spirit, he he, he, he discloses truth, but he doesn't disclose to uh, these 11 men, nor to us um, by way of the Scriptures. He doesn't disclose absolutely all truth. 
There are many things that we do not yet know. We will spend eternity, every day of eternity, learning new things about who God is and how he works and how he has worked and how he, what, what, what he's got planned for the next three millennia. Hmm. He doesn't disclose all truth. But what we have in the Scriptures, as Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, he's given us everything for life and godliness. Everything. So we don't have all the truth, but we have all the truth that we need for today. This has been disclosed to his apostles and his prophets And by way of the scriptures, these things have been disclosed to us. Now, can the Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit, in the average life of a believer, guide us, direct us, give us insight, understanding, discernment into the scriptures, the ways of God? Absolutely. But primarily, Jesus is talking to his men here. Now we see exactly what he's thinking, what he's talking about, namely the truth of the cross, having, having to die, having to leave his men. We see that in, in the next verses. And I want you to turn to the second page of your notes. If you look at verse 16, this is Jesus' statement that, that, that causes his men to scratch their head. A little while and you will, not, you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples, verse, 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 uh, verse 17, um, said to one another, what, what is this that he's telling us? A little while and you will, you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Because I go to the Father? What, 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 is, what is Jesus talking about? Into verse 18, we, we don't know. We are clueless. These, these men were completely dumbfounded and unable to wrap their mind around what's going on and what is Jesus really talking about? He's talking about a going, and then he's talking about a coming. He's talking about great sorrow. He's talking about great joy. How in the world do we put all of these things together? It was a riddle for them that was too complex. It was a jigsaw puzzle that was too large. It had too many pieces. It didn't have a border. And there wasn't even a picture on the box. It was a conundrum that was so confusing that their mind was spinning. They they couldn't wrap any kind of understanding about what is Jesus talking about? The Swiss theologian uh, Frederick Godet wrote in his commentary on the fourth gospel, uh, this, this question, he, he's, he's putting this question in the minds of the, of the disciples here. Um, 
Wherefore us, speaking of us believers in, in post-cross, wherefore us all is clear. For them all was mysterious. If Jesus wishes to found the messianic kingdom, why go away? If he does not wish it, why return? Going, coming, sorrow, joy, how in the world does all this fit together? Well, in um, John chapter 20, verse 20, we find that after the resurrection, this is what the, the uh, disciples experienced. John chapter 20, verse 20. He showed them his hands, his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Sometimes there is great joy in our circumstances. But there's a greater joy, a deeper joy, a more enduring joy that comes beyond our circumstances. And for the believers there in front of Jesus, these 11 men, the deeper joy was understanding what his death was all about. You see, the cross of Christ was necessary before we had a resurrection. It was necessary before Jesus could appear to hundreds of people. It was necessary before Jesus could ascend into heaven. It was necessary before Jesus could be coronated as the Lord of all lords. It was necessary before Jesus was able to send the Holy Spirit that would indwell every believer. The cross of Christ was critically important, essential. And the Spirit of truth is given to illumine the hearts and the minds of believers to see the depth and the breadth and the length and the height of the significance of Christ's cross. Jesus' men were overjoyed with, um, with the physical presence of Christ. But they came to understand, by way of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus' death was their death. And Jesus' victory was their victory. And Jesus' life was their life. The cross of Christ brings eternal joy. It brings death-defying joy. It brings joy that far exceeds any physical circumstance. 
Jesus was wanting to say to his men all of these things, but they were so enveloped in sorrow that they were unable to bear the truth of why it was so absolutely necessary that Jesus had to die. They didn't want to see their master, their Lord, their friend. They didn't want to see him leave. And they, 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 were, they were simply beside themselves trying to figure out uh, how, why, now, really? Middle of verse 19, Jesus knew that they wish, wished to question him. And he said to them, are, are, you, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Yeah, that's exactly what they were asking. So Jesus gives them this illustration. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice Pause there for a second. Your sorrow, Jesus tells his men, is going to deepen. You are going to have and experience a greater grief than what you are experiencing right now. And to make matters worse, the world is going to look at your experience and they're going to laugh. They're going to mock you. They're going to clap their hands in applause, celebrating the fact that this one who has called them on the carpet for their sin, this one is removed. And in that, your grief will be deeper. Your sorrow will be even stronger. Verse 20, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Her hour hasn't come. When she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. You moms have experienced this. As soon as you have that little one in your arms, lay that little one on your chest, there is so much that's right in the world. And there is great joy in those circumstances. And it's a wonderful thing to enjoy. But just a little while before that, you were in anguish, suffering, turmoil. Jesus concludes his illustration in verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And 
no one will take your joy away from you. What Jesus promises is, is, is a joy that goes beyond circumstances. They're not going to be only joyful that they see him physically again after the resurrection. There will be this deep, abiding, lingering, it's never going to go away kind of joy that will give them strength and hope and resolve no matter what the circumstances are. We need that kind of hope today, my friends. This world is going to the dogs. You know, we should change um, the symbols for political parties, maybe, um, and change one of them to, or both of them to the dogs. The, the world is, is um, not heading in a God-honoring way. But we have hope in the cross of Christ that goes well beyond any circumstance that we might have to live through. Point number two, and you will pray confidently. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Now that's a bit of a head-scratcher verse. Let's use it as a, a, a tool, a hermeneutical tool, if you will. Hermeneutics is the, is, is the science, the discipline of interpretation. Uh, and, and, and there are things that um, uh, we, we can discern from this verse by simple, careful observation. We, we've probably all been in, in, in Bible studies uh, in, in the past where uh, the leader will read the verse and say, well, how, how does that verse make you feel? Or what do you think that verse might mean? Well, some, sometimes... Um, those kinds of questions in the study of Scripture are um, not profitable. Um, so so let's, let's just practice looking at what the text says. We're not looking at what Rob says it says. We're not looking at what you say it says. We're, we're looking at what does Jesus say here? Well, if he begins, in that day, what day? He doesn't specify it exactly and precisely as might be helpful. However, the immediate context, speaking of when Jesus is going to leave, he's not going to be with them, and they're going to be in greater sorrow, and the world is going to cheer and applaud. We know that the day that Jesus is talking about is the day of his death. All right? In that day, you will not question me about anything. Now step back and think about this for just a second. Are you aware of anyone asking a deceased person 
a question and getting an answer from that deceased person. I haven't either. No. So when, when Jesus says, in that day you will not question me about anything, he's talking about the day that Jesus is going to die. And it's kind of obvious. You're not going to be able to ask me anything. You're going to want to. Now, here in, in these last couple of hours that Jesus has been with his men, all part of the upper room experience. We're talking about uh, the, the Last Supper, Passover meal that they celebrated together, and including uh, that time when Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot as his betrayer, and including this time after the meal where Jesus is sitting with his men and he's telling him all of these things, and he, he fills them up to the brim. Their shoulders can't bear any more weight. In this period of time, these hours together, John asks on Peter's behalf, chapter 13, verse 25, Lord, who is it? They're asking Jesus a question. Same chapter, after the meal, Peter asks, Lord, where are you going? Verse 36, chapter 14, not hearing the answer that he wanted, Thomas asks the same question of the Lord. And then in verse 8 of chapter 14, Philip asks Jesus about his identity, specifically his identity with the Father. Verse uh, 22 of chapter 14, Judas, not Iscariot, John clarifies, says to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Another question. Verse 19 that we read just a moment ago in chapter 16, amidst their confusion, their lack of information, Jesus knew that his men wanted to ask him a question. Question after question after question that evening. And then Jesus says, in that day, you're not going to question me about anything. Oh, you're going to want to. But I'm not going to be here. I will be in the grave. I will be dead. But hang on. You're not without resources. Middle of verse 23. Truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily, take out your pads, sharpen your pencil, take notes, gentlemen. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Listen, you're not going to be able to ask me questions, but you can ask the Father questions. You can pray to him directly. And if you ask in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 24 is also an interesting verse that causes us to put our thinking caps on. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. What? 
Does that mean that they hadn't prayed? Jesus' men spent all this time with Jesus and they haven't prayed? Well, think about it. God is in their midst, walking with them, going shopping with them, driving with them in their chariots. God is with them, and he sees their every need, and he meets their every need. They have needed of nothing. Even the taxes that they were to pay. Jesus says to the people, Jesus says to Peter, go down, throw your fish line in the water. The first fish you put, you pluck out of the water, open its mouth, and there you're going to find the tax for me and for you. Jesus provided for them in every way. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Four times in these three chapters, the Supper Room Discourse, Jesus uses the phrase, in my name, in my name, pray in my name. Now that's not a magic formula. It's, it's not a, a, a something that we 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 tack on to the end of a prayer simply to secure our answer. When Jesus says, pray in my name, he says, pray according to my will. Pray according to my character. Imagine me right there with you. We're walking down the road, we're going shopping, we're riding in our chariots, we're living life. Imagine that conversation. You want, when you pray in Jesus' name, you want God's will more than anything else. That is your highest priority. Parallel passage we might look at, if you want to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. The Apostle John writes this. This is the confidence which we have before him, of Jesus, that is, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. It all begins with a broken humble, contrite heart that says, I, I, I want your kingdom to come now, just, in, in, just as it is in heaven, so on earth. I want your will to be done, dear Father. The one who yields in this way to the will of Christ the will of the Father, the will of the Holy Spirit. That's the one whose, whose joy will be complete and whose answers will be perfectly, confidently fulfilled because God delights to do His will. And He delights to hear His children praying according to His will that His will be done. Do we always know 
when we are praying what God's will is? No. How wonderful would that be? No, we don't always know. And so all that we pray, it is, um, it, 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 it is always couched in terms of your will be done. Your will be done. I have for many years uh, defined joy as a settled confidence in a sovereign Christ. Regardless of my circumstances, I know with certainty that God is in control. He's the sovereign one. And I can take great joy in the fact that because he is sovereign, he will do his will. He will do what is pleasing to him. And I get the privilege of being a part of that. I give uh, Amy Carmichael the last word this morning. She was one who knew pain and she knew sorrow and she knew suffering. She wrote this. I put this in your notes. Joy is not gush. Joy is not jolliness. Joy is simply perfect acquiescence in God's will. Rejoice in the will of God and in nothing else. Bow down your heads and your hearts before God and let the will, the blessed will of God, be done. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to know, to serve the living God. There was no one like you. We thank you for your sovereign control in all things. We, thankful, we are thankful for the, the joys that you bring into our life in the midst of common, everyday kind of life experiences, including eating our bread and enjoying a conversation with a friend. But Father, you, you have gone to extraordinary, eternal lengths to produce in us a lasting, durable, everlasting joy. A joy that surpasses our circumstances. It's all rooted in the cross of Christ. We thank you for making us a people that are humble, focused on the cross of Christ. Rejoicing in our forgiveness. Cause the choices of our life, decisions that we make, to be in keeping with the cross and our true source of joy. I pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen.